listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my dear friend and co-host for this season, Shannon Hopkins. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be with you. So our theme for this season is Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership. And when we first conceptualized this theme, we thought it would be something about catalytic leaders and catalytic organizations. And in many ways, that is the common characteristics um, among our very different guests this season, whether they are serving as theologians, professors, politicians, pastors, executive directors, presidents, they're all facing reality and claiming leadership in their context, which inevitably means they are catalysts for change in their context. They are energizing people towards a vision for a new thing that God is doing, not by having all the answers, but by convening, connecting, and inviting the kinds of conversations that can lead toward the the changes that are needed to best serve the needs of our world today. And our guest today, Dave Odom, has been talking for years about the role of the catalyst, the need for catalysts in the church today. And we are so excited for you to hear this conversation. So one of the things I want to note is, you know, Dave pretty quickly references you, Shannon, um, and talks about how he came to this understanding through knowing you and the ways that you lead and the ways that you operate in the world. And so I want to just ask you, like, what do you have to say about catalytic organizations and leaders and what have you learned over the years? It was humbling to have Dave keep referencing me because (laughs) I, because, you know, for me, first of all, I think I, his understanding helped me recognize my own gift as a catalyst. Right. And so, and name it, because I think one thing is that often catalysts aren't building they're not just building their own thing or they're not trying to promote. And so often their leadership can, can be missed. Right. Mm. And, and I think the catalytic leaders are often they're galvanizers. They're seeing something. He points to that. They're seeing something different. Mm-hmm. They're seeing people at the edges of systems and helping to raise them up. So a forest grows instead of just like one single tree. Yeah. Like, I think that's the work of Callus. It's so in some ways it creates this viral energy that helps new systems emerge. And, and I do think, you know, we've, we've pivoted a lot in the from the way we were thinking about the season, but Mm -hmm. actually everyone is a catalytic leader and there, you see the, the trail of work. I don't know if that's helpful. I think there is a difference between catalytic leaders and catalytic organizations and, but mm. catalytic organizations, I think also they grow by taking risk. They grow by um, investing in others that don't always look like they serve the institution. And mm. I can guarantee there are people listening to this podcast that can immediately think, oh, those are the institutions I'm paying attention to right mm. now. Right. And um, nice. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's some of what I'm thinking about in terms of catalytic leadership and organizations. Yeah, well, I certainly see it in you, I, um, and we we get to experience it in Dave, even in the conversation. Mm. Um, yeah, will you share with our listeners his bio? Absolutely. Uh, Dave Odom joined Duke Divinity School in August of 2007 to launch leadership education at Duke Divinity. He now oversees all of its programs and publications, including faith and leadership. He regularly teaches and facilitates events and both writes and solicits content for faith and leadership. Since 2014, he has also directed Auburn at Duke Divinity. For more than 20 years, he has been active in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. He's an ordained Baptist pastor and a graduate of Furman University 
Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Princeton Theological Seminary. Thanks, Shannon. Dave is a dear friend, mentor, colleague of ours, and we are so grateful for all his support, care, example, and wisdom over the years. Um, I loved this conversation, and um, and I loved that it was the three of us getting to have it together. It was it was really lovely. So what stood out to you, Shannon? I loved the part where he um, talked about the health, a healthy church is not the purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the role of the church isn't just to be healthy or just to grow. Like, I loved that because he takes us back to why we need catalytic leaders, right? It's to help yeah. the church be all that it's meant to be. And yeah, and I do love the way you're right. He just embodies catalytic leadership. Yeah. Yeah, you, so, you hear it all the way through when he's referencing other folks and the ways that he builds up the church and leaders in the church. And, um, you know, one of the things that struck me that I hadn't really thought about is, and, and I probably mentioned this in the in the conversation, but that, that Catalyst, it, it's not the whole role, right? It, it's a part of the work, but, but there's also a, a good Catalyst has to have good boundaries, has oh. to have a strong sense of identity and purpose and be living into that. And, and it's out of that sense of identity and purpose that you can then begin to be a good catalyst in the system, if you will. And, and that, that felt really important. That came out in the midst of yeah. his words. Yeah, absolutely. So let's listen to our conversation with Dave Odom. Hi, Dave. It's great to see you. Great to see you, Lisa. So this season is all about facing reality and claiming leadership. And and of all of our guests this season, and it's a pretty incredible lineup, you are uniquely positioned to see the broad landscape of the church from your role at Leadership Education at Duke Divinity. So from your point of view, how would you describe the reality the church is facing right now? I mean, the church is facing the reality that everybody else is, Lisa. So, I mean, mm. I think the the headline for almost everybody is the reality of polarization. The fact that not, not only do we have differences of opinion, but more and more people only listen to and talk to people who agree with them. Mm. And it shows up in church in a certain way. It shows up in politics in other ways. Um, but it's a it's a serious challenge to any kind of leadership. And if you layer onto that a kind of mistrust of institutions, generally, no matter what their perspective is, then you've got, you've got an environment that feels like you're going uphill all the time. Mm-hmm. And therefore, leaders get tired. All, all the things that can happen as a result of doing hard work all the time. You know, it's interesting that you immediately start with the church is facing what we're facing in our larger culture. And and I think about Brueggemann's words that we use often, talking about the church being the alternative narrative. And so what is that? I mean, given this reality that you've described, what kind of leadership is needed in the church, but also by the church? And. I know what I hope for, and, <laughs> and that uh, is not necessarily what I'm observing is necessarily the most successful. Mm. And, you know, everything is a matter of, like, what's your measure of success? But I hope for this modeling of deep listening to one another. Mm. I mean, cl- clergy are trained to listen to a text— they're, list, they're trained to listen to people. Sometimes they have a lot of experience in, in facilitating dialogue across. Sometimes they don't have quite as much of that, but they have to learn it when they get in the middle of it. And so this posture of listening, of, of viewing the stance that the other person is taking charitably, like what's what's behind, what's what's informing, what's the joy or the pain that is informing them. This is, it's good pastoral care. It's good, it's good in all kinds of ways. Like in some ways now is the moment for the church to be what it always has been, but has not always claimed to see what other people can't see, to 
to walk into places that other people don't feel invited. Uh, we've kind of retreated from some of that and yeah. sort of treated like our church, our our mutual friend, uh, Bishop Huey, once said to me, she said, I, I, I don't think being a healthy church is the point. Mm. And I was like, tr- that's true. <laughs> it's it's the it's the witness of the church. It's the engagement of the church in the world. And now we get to practice every Sunday with the people who show up because they have as much difference between them in many cases as the people on the outside do. Yeah. So we're like it's a we're constantly both practicing and doing the work. So it's like it's the most important time to be congregation, it's the most important time to have a Christian witness, uh, and it's a very important time to take regular naps and take care of yourself because this is a long, this is a long period. This is this season is not going to end quickly. Oh my gosh! So Dave, you both just like made me light up, and you like are speaking my language when you say now is the moment for the church to be the church and. This is a time because I, you know me, I believe that this is, I think it's the greatest time for the church um, because we can act and people don't expect it and we can model something different. And then you also just like pop my balloon a little bit like Margaret Wheatley did by going, this is going to be a long time. (laughs) This isn't going to be over quickly. This, this phase we're (laughs) in. So uh, thank you. And uh, really But um, I wonder, you've talked a lot about the role of catalytic leadership in this moment, and you've written about it, you've used the phrase to talk about catalytic organizations and catalytic leadership. I'm wondering, like, given the realities of today, is the role of the catalyst important? And if so, why? So it's it's very funny to have a conversation about catalytic leadership with Shannon, because I think I learned more, I've learned more from Shannon about catalytic leadership than I have from any other place. And she keeps drawing me back to it. So now for you to be asking me questions <laughs> as if you're not a part of my answer is uh, humorous <laughs> at the very least. Nice. I mean, it, at some at some level, what I'm thinking about in terms of catalytic leadership is really very simple. It is discovering and supporting those who are initiating towards God's presence in the world, like who are like doing the work, doing the kind of actions that you see God in the, the, the world that God will create, is creating. And like, if if you talk to somebody like Shannon Hopkins, like you wonder, like, what, is it all that hard? Well, it turns out having the eyes to see is, has to be cultivated because we don't, we see, we don't see God's actions very, very clearly. So catalyst, catalytic work is like discovering, but also supporting, not just noticing it. Creating the conditions where other people's work can happen. And that can be done by an institution. It can be done by individuals. It can be done by smaller organizations. And like, I think you asked Shannon in your question, like, is it important? I think it's more important because we're really, um, we're participating in what this, in the creation or the, or the renewal of the structures of the church for the next season. I don't know if it's 50 years. I don't know if it's 100 years. I don't know if it's 500 years. I, I'm not that kind of historian. But if you if you listen to people in congregations, they don't believe that the structures that exist to support them do. They don't feel supported. Hmm. And so... In some cases, that means the structures that have that as their mission need to sort of re, be reconstituted, and some of them are doing that hard work. But in the meantime, other kinds of 
organizations and collections of people are emerging. And in some cases, it's churches supporting other churches. That's been true for generations. It's not new in this season, but it is, they just feel more powerful in it. And the kind of, the evidence that I have for that is like, congregations feel necessary to create their own curriculum, Mm -hmm. to create their own services. Some of that is really important because it needs to be contextual, but it also means that they're they're having to expend a lot of energy. Uh, and so they've either got to narrow their focus some or they have to find new kind of relationships, trusting relationships. So um, and you know, and I focus more of my attention on congregations than I do other other things because that's our mission. To, to support the structures. What? It, it, it's uh, mine. It, it makes a difference all throughout the, the congregational ecosystem, if you will, or the religious landscape. Um, and your fingerprints support are all over the place in ways that um, folks wouldn't even know that it traces back to, to you and to conversations that you've, you've had. So um, it, just to say that aloud, <laughs> but um, I, there's so many things to pull on here, and and I um, since I've heard you talk about catalytic leaders, catalytic organizations, and this notion of being a catalyst, I've been really drawn by that image. It, you know, in in chemistry, the Thank catalyst, you. if I have this right, doesn't um, doesn't actually give up their its own uh, composition, right? But it does it does ignite or catalyze a. A reaction in the other elements, right? And so everything I heard you say was all about the other. In other words, a catalytic leader is listening, supporting, empowering, networking, connecting, resource. It's all about the other. But in that, that leader, that individual, that organization is actually playing a vital role in the the church's ability to to witness and to have an impact and so i think about that and i agree i think i think it is absolutely a critical role to play and and in some ways if all of us are thinking about how do we be catalytic in other words how do we help others thrive and lead and flourish then and everybody is doing that, then what an incredible, frankly, Christian witness that is and, and powerful witness of love and, and grace and mercy and justice and all those things that that we're about. And um, so so I, I say all that to say, I, I'm all in with this notion and this image that you've used. And, you know, most of our leaders are, I mean, listeners are leaders of local churches, lay and clergy. And, and I, I wonder if there are like certain, I don't know, actions or um, things that folks ought to be thinking about or doing to lean into what it means to be a, a, a catalytic leader or organization. I, I think Shannon could give testimony mm-hmm. that if, if catalyzing is your only framework, you will be very poor. Hmm. <laughs> like it, it has to be combined. It is combined with other, with other sort of elements, mm-hmm. either by you or by by other people. So I I agree totally. Like the the witness is definitely multiplied by the catalytic work, mm-hmm. but I also think it is important to know your own place in either initiating or in investing or otherwise sort of supporting and sort of figure out like in a certain and in certain seasons of life and in certain seasons of an organization you can be more of one of those or the other but the one the first one that gets lost is catalyzing Uh, when i've watched like denominations go through restructuring, for example, and I have known who the catalysts are, the, the people who do more catalytic work, it's like you if the catalyst can't isn't taking credit for other people's work. They're always featuring the other, which is which is beautiful. And if you're a 
if you're a grandparent, you you you've already lived enough of your life where you can spend more of your time giving the credit where where the credit is happening. But if you're in another stage, it's just it's one element. So that that I wouldn't want to say that. In fact, I, in some of the writing, my earliest writing, some of which Shannon did not like, um, I I I used catalyst like a noun. As if like that's the thing. The, that's you are you are a catalyst, and I try to discipline myself not to do that, and to talk about it as a way of working and a way of seeing. So I think that's all preamble. The deepest practice, which is a spiritual practice, I think, Lisa, and it's a spiritual practice that Texas Methodist Foundation and the Wesleyan Impact Partners. You changed your name, so I have to relearn. <laughs> well done, things. friend. <laughs> but uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like your organ, your organizations have done this for a long time, so this is nothing nothing new to you. It's the discipline of seeing. Yeah. It's the discipline of paying attention, and it's the discipline of saying, "Oh, wow, that's that's really interesting." <laughs> I mean, Shannon, I you're. We've had a little bit of audio trouble with you, but I still think about the first time we met, and it wasn't actually a meet a meeting. The organization that Shannon uh, founded, Matriska House, which was really kind of a community and an organization all wrapped up in a confusing identity, <laughs> at least confusing to an outsider, and that's a sign that you're doing catalytic work when you can't quite understand what's <laughs> happening, but. There was a group of college students where I was leading a retreat and they played this game about entrepreneurship and resources, a game called Mission Possible. And like I watched the transformation of the students in the mm. room and asked the person who was facilitating it, like, what what is this? I got so excited I started talking too much, really bad habit of at that point, middle-aged ministers. But then I, I had this conversation. She said, oh, I'll just introduce you to the person mm. who created it, it was Shannon. And then I discovered, like, it wasn't just a game. The game was the result of the way of working that didn't just help people learn a new way of thinking, but a new way of seeing. And that's what we got to help yeah. one another with, is this yeah. way of seeing. Now, I should, probably should pause and let Shannon defend herself. <laughs> So I feel like I can't respond to any of that because I'm like blushing. But so, Dave, I'm remembering your earlier writing about Catalyst, where you talk about the role of the Catalyst, the investor and the adventurer. And you said a moment ago, like, if you're just working as a Catalyst, you're going to be really poor. You can't be your only way of working, which I do totally agree. But none of us have just one way of working, right? But when I look at the lock leaders, I think, wow, there's a group of catalytic leaders. They're really working to bring something new in the ecosystem. And I wonder if you would agree with that. And then also, it makes me think that the role that Wesleyan Impact Partners and Texas Methodist Foundation is playing in the ecosystem is one of a catalytic institution, and it makes me think that do we also need to look for ways to reward the catalyst when we've been, when actually as denominations have been changing and shifting and that's the role that's getting pushed out, do we need to do more to help kind of resource the catalytic work in the ecosystem? So um, I don't guess a podcast is all that interesting and if all you do is say yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But that's my, yes. I mean, part of my attempt to talk about uh, adventurers, which I would now call initiators, hmm. um, initiate the work of initiating beside the work of catalyzing, beside the work of investing is part of what the catalyzing work is, is helping investors see where to invest. And the system sort of uh, becomes much weaker if the people who can do the investing with their time, with their attention, with their financial resources, with their partnership and collaboration, 
if they don't see the value of the catalyzing work and don't figure out a way to fund it. Um, the initiating work, it's just always easier to fund it because you can see it, you can measure it. The person that's the people who are doing the work um, are seeing the reward. Now, some of, sometimes that's happening with inside economic systems where there is so little money that it requires ongoing investment to have the impact. So there's there's important questions there. It just doesn't take care of itself. But the the catalyzing work is in part interpretation between helping those who are doing investing work to see the initiating. Now, when an investment group like Wesleyan Impact Partners takes on the characteristics of catalytic work, then that's great because they've got some resources. They can help guide other people to it. Um, the philanthropy can drive attention in a way that's very positive when done, you know, sensitively, then that's terrific. So, yeah, I mean, I wish denominations are not the first group of organizations that have suffered from this sin. We all suffer from it. But when when any organization becomes worried about its own survival, mm -hmm. um, this is back to Bishop Huey's comment about healthy, healthy churches are not the point. Mm -hmm. uh, just being healthy is not the point like and to do to do what towards what end towards what purpose mm -hmm. um and so that's if that gets lost in any point because of the stress that's around us or the fears or worries or the changes in systems uh that can be that's a pastoral moment but um we have to eventually realize that the work is beyond beyond us. I, I when I was uh, running an institute, institution called the Center for Congregational Health, <laughs> so <laughs> thus I remember clearly Bishop Huey's words to me. At some point, I realized like I need some sort of vision that's beyond health, and I started thinking about yeah, you know, what it would be like for congregations to understand themselves as incubators of vocation, that they really create the conditions where the people who are a part of the congregation find their call from God. And some of that call is going to be um, working together as, as the church, but some of, that, some of that call is going to be out in the world. And this is a place where that gets incubated. It gets incubated in young people. It gets incubated in Tired middle-aged people, it gets incubated in people who are approaching something that's called retirement, which is really all about having control of your own time and deciding where you want to make an investment. So that's this is the sort of the way I think about how all these things work together. And I think about my my own vocation in this sort of encouraging, supporting way. So it, I realize it's partially my own stance in the world that causes me to see this as the work. Right. Well, and, and that's true for all of us, right? We see it through the lens of where we are and those kinds of things. I am, um, you know, a, a couple of things I want to pull on. One is we often say, gosh, everything comes back to formation. And what you just said about incubating, I mean, think about what happens in an incubator. It's about, forming, forming life, right? And, and um, creating the conditions where life can flourish and be formed. And, and isn't that the work of the church? And so interesting that here we are in this conversation and it comes back to, to formation. And then, you know, I, I'm going to leave this conversation with a new, as much as I've loved the image of Catalyst and still do, I'm, I'm walking away with a little different a more honed notion of what you mean by it and how important that piece of a catalyst in a, in, in a chemical reaction doesn't lose itself and how important it is for a, a leader, but also an organization to have a strong sense of identity of God given call and purpose so that we don't 
completely give ourselves away and diminish. And, um, and so that feels really important. And, and I, I want to hold on to that as I think about the role of catalyst, that that's not the whole of the role, but it's a piece and, and paying attention to that. Um, okay. Having said all that, um, I want to pivot a little bit, but I don't think it's a lot. And I, I would love to hear, you have an, an amazing team at Leadership Education, and I, I would love to know what are some of the conversations you all are having and some of the questions that you all are asking each other and and, and perhaps insights. And 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 maybe you just say, ah, oh, yeah, we've covered that. <laughs> and uh, um, But I, I wonder what kinds of things are surfacing for you all as you think about the reality of the religious landscape and the work of the church in it? I mean, so the the reason that you sort of call this conversation around the catalytic work, like that is at the heart of what we're thinking about because we're thinking about Mm -hmm. like what, what are the conditions that we need to be creating? I think the, the biggest shift that we've made in our thinking, and we have a new, we have 25% of our staff joined us in the last year. So we're we're going back to the basics in terms of our staff conversations. Yeah. We're experiencing yeah. again, like, so how do you, how are you thinking? Like, where did this come from? And <laughs> Why do you do this? It, and it, wonderful yeah. new eyes. Yeah. Yeah, because... So I'm, I have experienced half of my ministry in the 20th century, and I've experienced the other half in the 21st century. Hmm. Leadership education was born right at what some people think was the turn of the century, which was really the financial crisis of 2008, when the inequities that had built up in the, at the end of the 20th century got more fully exposed. And of course, the, the shutdowns related to the pandemic more more fully exposed it even again. So we're all sort of still living in the kind of in between, but I definitely live there. And the the heart of our work and what we sort of are talking to one another about is like how do we encourage everybody to be more catalytic, not uh, you know, I sort of said to you, it's got to be a sort of mixture. It's like, how can you do your do your work, do the work of your institution in a way that does form people into the way of life God wants us to lead and also multiplies the work in ways that you can't take credit for um, and that you're giving full, full attention, full support of all the people. I don't. I don't think there's a, a shortage of people who want to join together to follow sort of the God's vision of the beloved community and the new creation. But I think we have boxed ourselves in to where we're just we can't see it. We're spending more time, as I said before, like with people like us and bemoaning how few are people there are like us and not enough time going, oh, you know, that that Latinx community, they don't have the same kind of institutional infrastructure that we do, but my goodness, the nature of relationships and the, the family life that is much beyond family, like that's a source of nurture and energy that I'm missing. How do I respectfully join forces if that's what is open or at least enter into a relationship in which I realize, wow, they know something that I don't know. And when Mm -hmm. I say network, they think I'm talking about computers. So it's this -hmm. this, um, practice of noticing, naming for one another. And they think about family. They're not. And it's not something you build, it's something you nurture. And for us, it's setting up systems where we can see the patterns like, oh, we're we're doing pretty well in working in these communities and with these communities and with these sorts of institutions. We, are, we, we don't know enough 
we don't know enough people, we're not trustworthy enough. Because that's the that's the thing we haven't talked about is you might want to be catalytic, but unless you've earned trust, um, Shannon has introduced me to a few people over the years, names I will not use, but all everyone on this screen knows them, in which it's taken me more than a year before the person realized, oh, you're not going to take advantage of me. You're not going to take credit for my work. Mm. You're going to, wow. I'm going to be able to maintain mm. my own voice and work with you. I work for a big white institution, uh, an educational institution, and the, there's an automatic suspicion that I'm going to take it over, whatever the it is. So this work of building trust and being trustworthy. Yeah. I can see how that would be critical. You can't actually be catalytic because if if there isn't trust there or you don't prove your earn your way to being trusted because the whole notion of being catalytic is those who are being nurtured, encouraged, supported are kind of in a receiving at least a mutual sort of place. And and so that trust has to be built. That makes a lot of sense. The other thing I'm wondering, though, is in addition to trust, like what else is necessary? Because I'm thinking if I think about some of these other conversations, like when Pauline Boss was talking about, you know, the amount of loss that we're living with and like when we're swimming with like grief and fatigue, mm-hmm. when people are questioning our leadership or don't understand why we're working in a certain way. And when the world is, it is changing, even like value systems are changing. Like yeah. what else, like what else is needed in addition to trust? And I, I mean, I think about the pastors and go, how do they do this work in the conditions they're living in today? Yeah, I don't I don't think I have a complete list, Shannon. So I think uh you may know more. You, you know, no, don't you may know more. You can't say that. You can't say that. That's not true. And you can't use my <laughs> name anymore. I'll delete that out. <laughs> well, we'll see how the editor treats this section of the dialogue. <laughs> But, but I think it's important to realize, like, I I see a deficit and I've been moving towards the deficit. I haven't been trying to sort of study the whole. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I don't quite have as much language around it. I, I, do, I do believe that in this season, pacing and patience mm-hmm. are important. One of the, one of the advantages of the tenure that I've had in the in the places that I've been is that I've been two places for 15 years. And I now realize that the things that I worried about in the first couple of years are not quite as important as I thought they were. Like it just allows me to have a, a slightly longer view. Um, I can remember Roger Martin, who was one time the Dean of Rotman Business School is now related to IDEO University. He came to visit us because he was um, he was in relationship with our founder, Greg Jones, and he asked me a question. He said, so what have you accomplished? This was the first like three years of the organization's life. And what have you accomplished? And of course, you know, I had my grant report in mind and I was able to rattle off a few things. And finally, he just held his hand up and he said, you know, I, I wasn't really expecting you to say that you'd accomplish very much. He said, because if you're really trying to do something that is strategic and world-changing, it's going to take 15 years to Hmm. make a very substantial difference. And he was the second leader to have told me that 15 years within the month, the, a general who was a favorite of the Catholic church uh, leadership roundtable told me the same thing. He said, Hmm. and, and the thing that the general pointed out, well, actually, that came out in my conversation with the general is he had never had an assignment that lasted longer than three years. And, and I said, well, how do, you, how do you think about 
the kind of difference you want to make in 15 years. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you don't think the 15 years starts when you arrive. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my oh my God, that is that is exactly what I think. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no. First, you have to figure out where in the 15 years you that you are leading at what yeah. stage are you leading? Yeah. So I think we're still fairly early in the 15 years for most of us in mm. most places. Like there's so many things, as Shannon said, that have shifted that we like we're we're having trouble knowing what to measure, how to know what success looks like. We're we're, we're having and so is everyone else. And so some people rush to put the old standards on us and because it just because they're looking for something. So this sort of we're living in a kind of constant state of elevated anxiety, which means we have to take more naps. Right. We have to be patient and we have to to encourage the patients when we see it in others so that it can be multiplied within the system and outside the system. Mm-hmm. Affirmed, rewarded. Um, yeah. yeah. Named and celebrate any any sort of small change, whether it's organizational or human. And that's it, part of the fun of, of catalytic work is you, you're not creating it. You're noticing it and affirming it. And it creates hope to realize, it creates hope in me when I see oh, wow, this really great thing is happening. Now, the the thing I've noticed, even with a few of your rock fellows, is they don't necessarily have the language to describe their own progress. Because hmm. I will visit with them sometimes and say, well, this is what I see is happening. And they're like, wow, that's, that's great. And like, they're so busy right. trying to initiate the next thing that they're not noticing progress or at least signs of hope that are present. Yeah. Dave, I wonder if you could talk about what gives you hope for the church in this moment. Like what is what's giving yeah, what's giving you hope now? Is there a story you could share from a church or a ministry or a leader that embodies your hope for the church? My favorite recent visit is actually to somebody that that all of you know, the Bethel Church in Morristown, hmm. New Jersey, the AME Church, and there's a, there are a couple of things. One of one of the most striking things is that they they have their their history, their meta history as a congregation on display on the street in front of the church. They have a picture of John Wesley. They have a picture of Francis Asbury. They have a picture of Richard Allen. And they tell, like in a little paragraph form, the impact of these people. And then the sidewalk going up into the church building, like at the center of it is the the mother of their church, their church mother. And then some of the saints' names are on on the sidewalk. And so we we talk about uh, the phrase that Greg Jones uh, named for us is tradition innovation. Like I have never seen tradition that brazenly put out. And if you talk to if uh, Sydney Williams is the pastor of Bethel, and if you talk to Sydney, like your interest will drive the way he tells the story. So if you want to hear all about innovation, you will hear all about innovation from Sydney. If you want to hear about finance and how to stir up economic imagination, then he'll give you all of that. But if you ask him about tradition, he'll say, well, yeah, part of the early work in this church was recovering its history. Mm -hmm. And so those signs on the street and that sidewalk are a part of that. And the saintly pastor that they discovered, who was later an AME bishop, but was a conductor on the Underground Railroad when he was in Bethel, like the people in the church had completely lost all of Interesting. That. They they had it was very deeply buried, and he's like worked on history displays that are at the Morris County. I don't know if it's the Library of Chamber of Commerce or something like that. In addition to a feeding program and everything else, so this this little church um, 
is the hub, it's, it's almost entirely catalytic. And the thing that he probably wouldn't want me to emphasize is, if you've got a problem in your church, Sydney has it in his. Mm. All of that tremendous work has not kept the people from being irritated and not being able to use the kitchen at the end of a funeral because there's a feeding program going on. Like all the things that every pastor has ever experienced, Sydney has those too. The evidence of his faithfulness to the work that I see is like the incredible ministries that his children are bringing to life on their own. Like that's a formational place and it certainly has to do with his parents, but it also has to do with the church. It has to do with the community. But, you know, I, I find really remarkable people doing remarkable things in every church. I find some congregations who block it and who don't, it doesn't happen in the Mm. building. It doesn't happen as a blessed part of the church, but I find them everywhere. And, but there's just a unusually large number around Sidney Williams Mm. and Reggie Blunt and the ministry that they've done with the Oikos. But frankly, I could go through every one of the lock fellows that I know and tell a similar story. Very cool. Including our friend Shannon. So, yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, worth noting that, uh, that Sydney, if I have this right, he's in his uh, 15th year. And so, I mean, if you just think about what you said earlier, I mean, this is, this is the, the long game, right? This is patience and listening. And he started, he didn't jump in with innovation. He started with who are we and identity and purpose and tradition and and such. So uh, yeah, that's a beautiful story. Okay, Dave, we're going to wrap up here with a few rapid fire questions and then kind of a final question that we're asking everybody. So here's some, some rapid fire questions for you. What's a book you have read fairly recently that you'd recommend for leaders? So I really like David Gushy, who teaches at Mercer, his book on moral leadership, because it has several, it has numerous sort of biographies. And that's what inspires mm-hmm. me is the stories of people from the church's history. And David's an ethicist. And so it he puts it together in a nice way for people who can only read so much. They've got too many other things going yeah. on. So that's a nice, book I would recommend. Nice. What's a spiritual discipline you found meaningful in your leadership over the years? So I start every day in quiet. And there's a series of activities that I do that are, you know, but that sort of starting the day with quiet, a couple of hours of quiet has been important to me. Otherwise, I find myself rushing and not not doing the sort of deep, higher level thinking, trying to check things off yeah. my list. So, What's a nugget of wisdom you would offer a leader facing exhaustion or burnout? Yeah, so this is not a question that I'm not going to let my wife listen to this podcast. Um, Fair. <laughs> so so the, my nugget of wisdom has to do with pacing. What does... To me, the antidote to burnout, not if you can even say it that way, has to do with variable speed. If you are operating at the same speed all the time, it there's a kind of burnout that comes, and you've got to have some sort of rhythm. You've got to have some sort of variable speed. I named that mine starts in quiet. That doesn't have to, that's not the, There's multiple kind of ways to do that, but once you're at a stage of burnout, then you've got to reset. You've got to go through some sort of experience of resetting. Very painful and probably not something to do in isolation. Probably requires community, requires support. 
Finally, we are asking all of our guests this season uh, one question. So as you consider the reality of the world, things we have talked about today, and the leadership to which you have been called, what do you want to be remembered for? So we we have a very, um, I'm sure this is really irritating to everybody, but we have this thing when someone says that someone else has been helpful, I insist that we stop and mm. celebrate. Oh, that was helpful. Mm. That's good. I I do hope that part of my legacy is that I have helped people find, name, and claim their vocation, and that I've done that. And and to me, that's what help signals. When you've helped someone at a deeper level, you've helped them reconnect with their sense of God and God's vision for the world, um, which is a deep definition of vocation. I just want to say, um, Dave Odom, I you have done that for me. And when I met you, I was so close to giving up. And you really helped me. You saw my work. You helped me reclaim my calling, my leadership. And, and I am forever changed. So that doesn't have to be in this podcast, but I wanted to say it out loud in the company of other friends. So I'm forever grateful for your work in the world in big ways, but also in the very personal ways. Yeah. You are a helpful and generous soul. Dave, we are grateful. Thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. Imagination is a production of the learning and innovation team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.